Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Lily Jamali. We are learning more this morning about Wednesday's mass shooting in the Southern California city of Orange. The shooting left four people dead, including a child. With more, here's the California Report, Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Saul? Lily, authorities have identified the suspected gunman as 44-year-old Aminadab Gaxiola Gonzalez, a longtime resident of nearby Anaheim. He reportedly had a business and personal relationship with the shooting victims. City of Orange Police Spokesperson Lieutenant Jennifer Amutt says the victims won't be officially identified until next of kin can be found and notified. As you can imagine, this is a complex scene which takes time to thoroughly process. We will provide the identity of the victims as soon as they are available. We feel for the families who believe that their loved ones may be one of the victims. Authorities say Gonzalez arrived at the shooting scene, a business for real estate and manufactured homes, carrying a semi-automatic weapon, as well as pepper spray, handcuffs, and bike cable locks, which he used to lock a gate to the business. When police officers arrived on scene in response to 911 calls from neighbors, the Orange Police Department says the officers shot through the gate and wounded Gonzalez. Two women and a man were killed in the shooting. The child who was killed, a nine-year-old boy, reportedly died in the arms of his mother, who was wounded. She's been hospitalized and is receiving emergency medical treatment. Lily? Thank you, Saul. Well, we are going to turn now to our state's ongoing unemployment crisis. The California Report has been tracking it ever since the pandemic started, including the mountain of both fraudulent and legitimate claims filed with the state. But one thing we haven't told you much about is where the money to pay all those claims comes from. To learn more about the state's unemployment insurance fund, my colleague Mary Franklin Harvin talked with Lauren Hepler, who covers the economy for Cal Matters and has a new piece out this week. Lauren, I think a lot of us are familiar at this point with the laundry list of issues at EDD. From the fraud to the insane wait times, and most importantly, the fact that many legitimate applicants still don't seem to be getting their money. But your article takes a much bigger picture perspective by looking at the state's unemployment fund. Can you give us the broad strokes of that fund? How big is it? And is it common for it to be out of money like it is right now? Yes. So California's unemployment insurance trust fund is not something that a lot of people think about day to day, but it's hugely important. So while programs like Social Security are paid for by taxes that workers can all see on their pay stubs, unemployment is actually funded by employer taxes that are paid each year. And one of the big things that's come up in recent months is the fact that those taxes were very quickly depleted at the beginning of the pandemic 
pandemic. Uh, as of March, California has taken out a loan of $21.2 billion from the federal government to keep paying for jobless benefits since those taxes ran out. And the state is estimating that that deficit could reach $48 billion by the end of 2021. And one of the issues you talk about in the piece that struck me most is that the way California's unemployment tax system is set up, it actually hits lower paid workers harder. Why is that the case? That's right. And this all goes back to a wonky thing called the wage base, which is the amount of worker pay that employers are taxed on. In California, that amount is $7,000. So they're only paying taxes on the first $7,000 a worker is paid. And that's a figure that hasn't been updated in 39 years and is the lowest amount allowed by federal law. So in practical terms, what does that mean? It means that uh, workers who are making less money are getting less unemployment benefits if they lose their job, but their employers are still taxed the same amount as higher page workers. Is fixing the gaps in the system something that seems like a priority to lawmakers? So as it stands, unemployment is run by each state individually, but there's sort of an umbrella system at the federal government level. There's some policy researchers like at UCLA and elsewhere who say, really, the pandemic should have demonstrated to us that we should have one national program for unemployment, like a lot of other countries do. But there's not a whole lot of momentum for that to actually happen. So instead, what we're seeing at the state level in California are these much smaller proposals for kind of low-hanging fruit types of reforms. So there's talk about having stronger checks on incarcerated people getting unemployment benefits, which is already illegal, um, on adding a direct deposit option for unemployment payments, which is something really popular. But again, it doesn't get at this underlying issue of the tax base and how much money the state has to ultimately run this program long term. And, you know, I think it's important not to forget that EDD still has an enormous backlog. And these numbers aren't just data. They're Californians who aren't getting resources that many desperately need at this point. And so I think it's just important to end with a reminder of the humanity behind all of this bureaucracy. Yeah, after months and months of talking to people who are out of work across the state, I think one of my biggest concerns is sort of the the domino effect that we might see after all of this, that that's a huge potential issue to think about for the state economy as we get into these conversations about recovery after the pandemic. That was The California Report's Mary Franklin Harvin talking to CalMatters economy reporter Lauren Hepler. You can find Lauren's reporting on state unemployment at calmatters.org. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything 
from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts. A new audit has found that as COVID-19 cases surged in the winter here in California, the State Department of Public Health fell well short of its goals on contact tracing. The report from the state auditor found that in a one-month period ending on December 24th, state and local health agencies had only conducted successful contact tracing interviews for 40 percent of total cases, and staff was able to identify possible close contacts in just 16 percent of those cases. In a positive development on the vaccine front, the city of Los Angeles is taking over operations at a mass vaccination site at Cal State L.A. that had been run by the federal government. And Governor Gavin Newsom says Alameda County will likely take control of the site at the Oakland Coliseum. KQED politics reporter Guy Marzarati has more. The federal government opened sites at Cal State Los Angeles and the Oakland Coliseum in part to provide vaccines to nearby communities of color. But the feds have only promised to run the sites until April 11th. That's led the city of L.A. to step in and keep the SoCal site running. And Newsom says he's working with Alameda County to get them the keys to the Coliseum location, even if that site might change form in the future. They will have a more distinctive and unique operation than the current one uh, because of some of the logistics concerns as baseball season reopens. That's at the site of the Oakland A's. Newsom says the two locations have delivered just 4% of California's doses. For the California Report, I'm Guy Marzarati. Meanwhile, the CDC is issuing new guidance this morning on travel for people who are fully vaccinated. The agency says for domestic travel, people who are two weeks past their final shot don't need to get a coronavirus test before or after their trips and don't have to self-quarantine after traveling. And for international travel, fully vaccinated people don't need to be tested unless it's required by the destination. The new guidance comes a day after California's Department of Public Health lifted its own advisory asking people to stay within 120 miles of their homes. It's still unclear if the state will change its travel policies to match those of the CDC. The CDC is advising everyone to continue to wear masks. And now for a preview of our sister show, The California Report magazine. A few weeks ago, KQED's health reporters went inside two hospitals in Sacramento to see how the pandemic has changed the way doctors do their jobs. Leslie McClurg went inside an intensive care unit, and April Domboski was in the emergency room. They both join me now. Good morning. And I want to ask you both, after reporting from home for a year, what stood out to you most about being in the hospital? April, let's start with you. Yeah, I mean, I sort of feel like I've been in a convent all year, and it was so striking to show up in an environment that was actually quite crowded and really, really noisy. It was also really intense to just see the pandemic play out. You know, I've been writing all year about shortness of breath, for example. It's this common COVID symptom, but to actually see somebody grasping for breath was just a completely different thing. How about you, Leslie? I would say the thing that stuck out so much for me was the lack of kind of warmth at the bedside. I've heard doctors say that all the new pandemic protocols prevent that, you know, kind of warmth, that care. 
and you've got people who are on their deathbeds and the doctors and nurses who are coming into care for them can't hold their hands and the rooms are loud because there's these big negative pressure fans and they're in all this gear kind of making them look like Martians, you know, the doctors and the nurses. And this person is all alone in there about to die. And there's so much distance between them and the communication that's happening with the doctors and the nurses. It was pretty gut-wrenching. Yeah, it must be so shocking to see that in person. We've heard the stories this past year about doctors and nurses wishing so much they could be there physically for these people. But obviously, there are so many restrictions that prevent that. April, what surprised you most about the ways the jobs of staff at these hospitals have changed? You know, the thing that really surprised me most was doctors in the emergency room talking about how fewer patients are coming in. And this was something that we heard about in the beginning of the pandemic when everything shut down. You know, people weren't driving. People weren't going to school. And so people weren't getting in car crashes and kids weren't, you know, falling off the monkey bars in the playground. And so that actually had an effect on the finances in the emergency room, an effect that actually is still kind of continuing right now. So you had these emergency room doctors who are facing all kinds of new risks because of the pandemic. And at the same time, their hours were cut. They were taking pay cuts. I hadn't thought about that. How about you, Leslie? The thing that hit me was that COVID has all these ripple effects, right? So I talked to this palliative care nurse, and usually her job is helping people manage their pain or maybe helping families come together to make plans for when those final days unfold, you know, kind of advanced care planning. But right now, she is totally overwhelmed and her patient load has exponentially increased because so many people who didn't get their routine care throughout the year, people who didn't get their cancer screenings, etc., are in such bad shape that she, instead of managing their pain, is transitioning a lot of her patients to hospice. So it's kind of this other death wave that's unfolding that's not even because of COVID, but, you know, tangentially related. They're kind of like collateral damage from this last year. Well, April Domboski and Leslie McClurg, thank you guys both so very much for going into these hospitals and bringing out this very moving story. You can hear April and Leslie's documentary this weekend on the California Report magazine. Guys, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Lily. And that is the California Report for this Friday, April 2nd. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineers are Katie McMurrin and Danny Bringer, with assistance from Seal Muller. Our producers are Mary Franklin Harvin and Keith Mizuguchi. Our senior editor is Angela Corral. Our director of news is Vinnie Tong. Our executive editor is Ethan Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Lily Jamali. Have a great weekend. Support for the California Report comes from California Healthcare Foundation, ensuring the voices of Californians are heard in California's decisions about healthcare. On the web at chcf.org/voices. The James Irvine Foundation, accepting nominations now for the 2022 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvineawards.org, and Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone everywhere. 
Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions. Online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.